Hey everybody, this is 80s wrestling fan Brian, and I'm back with Evan Ginsberg for another episode of Legendary Wrestling Figures. For anybody not familiar with Evan, he is the associate producer of the movie The Wrestler, as well as the documentary 350 Days. He's the producer of Wrestling Then and Now. And he's also the senior editor of Pro Wrestling Stories. So I'd encourage you to check out all of these projects. Really interesting stuff, really cool stuff that Evan has uh, been a part of. Evan, how are you doing? I'm doing good, and I'm happy to be back on your show. Hey, I really appreciate you. Um, as we've uh, talked a little bit about The Wrestler and 350 Days last time, um, I'm wondering what your first experiences with uh, wrestling in cinema were. Um, like if you saw the 1970s version of The Wrestler and what you thought about it. And also if you ever got to see The One and Only with Henry Winkler. Yes. Um, I'm a cinephile. I, I, I enjoy everything from Grindhouse to Odd House. And anything wrestling related back in the day, I would seek out. And many of the films back in the 70s and 80s were, you know, no budget. Um, I like to hurt people with the original Sheik and Dusty and Billy Graham and all those guys. Uh, you know, they were done on a shoestring, a lot of improv. Um I love my breakfast with Blassie, with uh, Andy Kaufman and uh, Freddie Blassie having a, having a breakfast together. And, and I watched that recently. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's wild, uh, you know. It and, is. And also done on a shoestring. And uh, my one and only with Henry Winkler. The, the problem with a lot of the wrestling films was back in the day, you didn't expose the business. So you're kind of watching it in the you know, they're making like everything going on in the ring is real and the face is valiantly trying to, you know, best his opponent and, you know, it doesn't exactly ring true, but uh, it's still entertaining and campy usually. And uh, there's a very obs obscure film, uh, Wrestling Queen with Vivian Vachon. Uh, mm. Yeah, they're... they're there have been plenty of wrestling movies, um, but honestly, honestly, I, and I, I know it's going to sound egotistical, but, but you know, they, they they just don't compare to the wrestler. You know, it's like a whole no. it's a whole different level of filmmaking. You know, it definitely is, and it's it's uh, it's funny if you revisit the uh, the one and only. Uh, what's funny about that one is that it does expose the business a little bit. And I was wondering for 1970, I think it was 1978, because um, they show Henry Winkler coming up with these new characters and hypnotizing people. And they have uh, the debut of uh, Roddy Piper in this uh, soldier getup. And I think Gene LaBelle got him the part in the film. But they show how every night, town after town, that uh, he gets hit with a foreign object and knocked out and, and the match is over in an instant. And so, uh, so that one kind of does expose the business. And I was wondering if it was frowned on at all uh, at the time by, uh, by, you know, the wrestlers, or if it was just uh, not seen enough to even uh, uh, 
make a splash or or if you a lot, if you a lot of these a lot of these films were not wild successes they were you know on double and triple features in grindhouse theaters you know so uh i, I it wasn't like today where you have social media and everything is uh overly analyzed to the point of uh you know it gets numb after a while the way they overanalyze like everything that comes out. So um, you really don't need the 1500th uh, review of Raw or SmackDown, you know? So, yeah. so uh, yeah, it was a different world back then. You didn't have social media. You had film critics and a lot of the film critics wouldn't bother with a no budget uh, you know, wrestling related film. I mean, the one and only, you know, Henry Winkler was was a star because of Happy Days, and he was hot at the time. So, you know, that got some attention. Um, and it, it was not a bad film. It was not a bad film. Um, but um, it took a real, real long time for wrestling films to, and, and I include, you know, Dark Side of the Ring and, documentaries today to, to get serious, like really serious about the subject. Um, Do you remember Body Slam around 1986 with Roddy yeah, Piper? Yeah, Jesse and Ventura. And, Tonga Kid. And, yeah, you know, it, it, as, as my late mom would say, a piece of fluff, you know? It wasn't exactly yep. Citizen Kane, you know? It was, no. it was what it was. To be a wrestling fan, You'd seek it out, and you go, "Oh wow, look! There's my favorite. There's Roddy." You know, and you'd mark out, and but it was far, far from a, a great movie. Um, and today, you know, uh, wrestling is mainstream, and it's um, people are more anxious to explore it, and and they're. In many cases, like Dark Side of the Ring, it's profitable and it reaches a fairly large audience. So uh, you're motivated to do something bigger and better and more realistic. Um, when we did 350 Days, um, which is about an hour 50, we, we, we had 90 or so hours of footage that we edited down to an hour 50. And... The editor, Michael Burlingame, was not a wrestling guy. And this was intentional. We're like, Mike, make a movie. Make a movie that would make a 90-year-old grandmother who doesn't like wrestling cry. That's what I said to him. I said, make a quality film. We don't need another film, you know, uh... I mean, a lot of the wrestling films, it's the same, it's the same stuff. It's a, it's a ragtag band of indie wrestlers, you know, trying to make it. Okay, that's fine. I mean, maybe you don't need 20, 20 movies with the, with the same theme, you know. Uh, so when we did 350 Days, we really tried to do something that would tug at the heartstrings. I mean, guys on the road, they're... They're, they're lonely, they're in pain, they miss their kids. Maybe they're guilt-ridden because they've committed adultery many, many, many times, whatever the case may be. Yeah. Uh, 
Yeah, so, you know, you're shooting higher today than back in the 70s and 80s when it was more like, uh, let's do a fun film for wrestling fans. Now, now you're really trying to create art. And it's, if you were going to uh, pick out in 350 days, um, like I feel like Billy Graham, superstar Billy Graham, he really, uh, he was just a shining star of that with the the stories he told. But George Steele, Greg Valentine, I mean, there were so many uh, great uh, stories told. Um, who were the standouts for you as far as, uh, I guess they all made it on film, so it's a silly question, but were there any that... Uh, really resonated with you more than others? Superstar Billy Graham could read the phone book um, and you would be riveted. I mean, the guy was one of the great talkers, one of the great promo guys. Again, I can't wrap my head around him being gone because he was so larger than life charismatic. And um, when he says, and, 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 you know, his story is pretty well known. He, he had drug problems. And uh, at one point, he disappeared off the face of the earth. And Gorilla Monsoon had a column in a Philadelphia newspaper. He writes in the newspaper that Billy Graham was dead, only he wasn't. Okay. <laughs> so Billy Graham just fell off the face of the earth. That's, that's how bad things were going you know, wrestling wise and, you know, as far as his lifestyle at the time. So, so yeah, Billy Graham, when he goes, I would do it all over again. He says this yeah. in 50 days. I mean, it's yeah. priceless. It's priceless. And he meant it. And yeah, uh, yeah George Steele uh, talking. I don't remember if it's in the film itself or the outtake, but uh, we, we have so much footage, but, George Steele at one point talks about people approaching him and he goes, you know, you work at our high school. <laughs> and yeah. he's, like, he's like, and they, they would show a picture of George the Animal Steele in a wrestling magazine. And he would go, you're trying to tell me I'm not ugly? <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, like he would work the kids and the kids would uh, back off because he, he didn't want to expose his... Uh, it's like Batman and Bruce Wayne. He didn't want to expose his secret identity. So, yep. yeah, George Steele was a great talker. And uh, there's, there's probably three dozen wrestling, wrestlers and legends in 350 days, and many of them are gone. And um, Greg Valentine, I, a lot of people said Greg Valentine and Ox Baker stole the show because um, Ox Baker was so over-the-top colorful. And, Both great. But uh, Greg Valentine was so nonchalant. So, you know, yeah, you know, me and Piper going down the road doing eight balls of coke. <laughs> you know? Yeah. yeah. Uh, they're driving a car. And he's like, oh, yeah, we're doing eight balls of coke. Like, like you know, like it's just another night at the office. So, uh, yeah, these guys are larger than life. I'll tell you a very funny Greg Valentine story. He stayed, by, he, he stayed by me many times. He's a dear friend, very intelligent, street smart, you know, tough guy, tough guy. He's in his 70s. You, you wouldn't want to get into a fight with him. But anyway, no. Greg Valentine's sleeping on my couch, and he, we, we, we're, we're heading to a gig, and he um, walks out of my apartment in Queens, New York. A car that's passing by, stops on the dime, 
rolls down their windows and goes, you're Greg Valentine. And, and Valentine, Valentine goes, yes, I am. Yes, I am. <laughs> that, that's, that's how famous this guy is because he still looks like Greg Valentine, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, he basically looked 50 when he was in his 30s and he still looks 50 in his 70s, right? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. He's back. Anytime you're out with Greg, he's recognized everywhere. Um, Lanny wasn't. Lanny looked different as he aged. You know, Lanny Papo, also a dear friend. And um, yeah, it's, it's interesting getting to know these guys as human beings. And that's what you want to capture on film. Who were they? Who are they? Who are they? Depending, um, you know, how did they sacrifice? Um, what did they go through? Um, I'm not a shoot interview guy. I, I don't really care about going over every angle, every every title, every, you know, I, I find it almost obsessive. But um, when you really pour your heart out and, and talk about what you went through, um, Johnny Valiant told me he was wrestling in the Mideast and he looks out in the crowd and it, it dawns on him. He goes, there's not a single woman in this crowd. You know, how, how real it felt, you know, and you're a kid from Pittsburgh, a blue collar guy from a blue collar family. And you're wrestling in front of oil sheiks, you know, in the, in the Mideast and just how utterly bizarre you know the wrestling world could be and um johnny valiant told me one night he was headlining the the philadelphia spectrum with um jerry valiant at the time and um jerry valiant's the the, the match hasn't started yet and jerry valiant's looking up at the uh, ceiling and they're about to wrestle bob backlund and ivan putsky in the main event and uh, he, he says to Jerry Valiant, Jerry, what, what are you looking at? And Jerry goes, wow, I wonder what the electric bill is for all these lights up here. <laughs> <laughs> and Johnny's like, focus, focus. You know? You're, you're, you know, you're about to wrestle in front of God knows how many people. It's the mean event. <laughs> so so uh, when you get to know these guys as human beings, it's... Uh, it's it, it's it's very uh, enlightening, and uh, a lot of these guys you can learn a lot from. Um, you can learn an awful lot from just life lessons. You know, Johnny used to say, "Get get to the arena. Get get. You never know what could happen. You know, a a bus, a train, a greyhound, whatever could break down. Get to the arena. You know, it's like." These guys were worldly. They um, they experienced everything, the good, the bad, and the ugly of all of it. And um, Lanny Poffo used to say, I saw the world on the promoter's dime. You know, he was a kid from the Midwest. And he, again, he wrestled everywhere, all around the world. And um, beautiful women throwing themselves at you and... Uh, Lanny Poffo, who a lot of fans are unfair towards, you know, living in the shadow of his brother, Randy Savage. And there was no sibling rivalry. Lanny was always very proud of, of Randy and 
boasted of what a huge star he was. Um, Lanny said to me when he wrestled Hulk Hogan on Saturday night main event, four million people watched. Four yeah. million people watched. Because back then you didn't have, you know, thousands of channels, you know. Mm -hmm. And yeah. And he said, I wrestled Hogan on top at the garden and all around the circuit. He said, I made more money that year than, you know, any time in my entire career. So, um, you know, uh, one of my pet peeves is when the quote unquote fans, and it's not very friendly, what they do is they'll go, oh, he was just a jobber. And they don't, yeah. un they don't understand that the word Jabba is a pejorative. It's it's a criticism. You know, they these guys played an important role. They built up stars that, that drew money. And the one loss record doesn't matter because if you understand wrestling, you know that a Johnny Rods, a Jose Estrada, these were great, great wrestlers. It didn't matter that they lost three out of four matches or four out of five matches. Somewhere else, they were on top. Somewhere else, they were main eventers, you know? And unfortunately, because WWE's always been the biggest game in town, you know, you see guys who were legit main eventers, champions, even WWWF tag champs or whatnot, and 10 years later, they're being jobbed out. And that's the way people remember them. And that's yeah. not what their the entirety of their careers were. A Butcher Paul Vachon was one of the greatest tag wrestlers of all time. Okay? You know, so they you see him when he's older in uh, WWF, WWE, and he's being jobbed out. And it's a shame because... People don't understand just what a big star this guy was. And many guys like that, Jerry Valiant, Buddy Rose, later later in their careers, they, they were used differently. But uh, you don't tear them down. You don't, especially after, after many of them are gone, you know, uh, you, don't, you don't summarize their career as, quote, he was just a jobber. It's, it's, right. it's very unfair. Very unfair. Did you uh, did you happen to see the uh, dark side of the ring with Adrian Adonis? Not yet, no. Okay, well, uh, I'd highly recommend. I think they do uh, one of the better jobs of all the episodes that they've done as far as uh, uh, promoting his legacy and uh, allowing his uh, wife and both daughters on there. So I think I think you'll like it. Um, he's another guy where. So many people look at the adorable gimmick and uh, and disrespect him. And and uh, at that time, you know, he was he had the weekly uh, the weekly talk segment on the top syndicated program for that summer of '86. He had a run with Hogan on the house shows. He was involved with you know Roddy Piper's last major angle before he uh, retired that first time in '87. So it's something where I'm I'm glad that they're finally. Uh, uh, shining a light on Adrian just as far I know he had his his problems but he was uh such a talent in the ring even at his biggest and so I'm glad that they've uh finally focused some more attention on him and remembered him I'd love to see more guys uh enshrined in the, the hall of fame just to 
uh, even the enhancement, like you say, just to basically respect the sacrifices that they've given and to honor their families and let their families enjoy some uh, um, some sort of reward for all that their uh, their loved ones were put through and put them through. I wrote a piece for ProWrestlingStories.com. I'm also their senior editor, and I wrote a piece on Bob Backlund's greatest matches, and I said in that piece that his match with Adrian Adonis that I saw live at the Nassau Coliseum was the greatest Bob Backlund match I ever saw live. I, wow. uh, it was like a 27-minute back-and-forth trading of two-and-a-half counts. It was a clinic because – in 1982, Adrian Adonis, you know, he, he was masterful. The guy was tremendous, tremendous wrestler with charisma, a showman. And, um, you know, yes, years later, he put on a massive amount of weight and they turned him into a cartoon, WWE. And it's too bad because um, a younger Adrian Adonis, uh, whether he was teaming with Dick Murdoch or Jesse Ventura, I mean, the guy was great, great, and um, and I'm jaded, and I'm telling you, that, you know, uh, he would he would wrestle Backlund for the belt, Pedro for the Intercontinental belt, uh, tremendous, tremendous wrestler, and yeah, you you remember him for a silly gimmick years later, which is unfortunate, but even then he was still putting on great matches. Definitely, definitely, he was. I mean, even that Piper. I know they had to cut the, the match at WrestleMania three a little short to do all their haircut stuff, but that six minutes in the ring they had was, it was tremendous. They got Jimmy Hart involved. Adrian did the uh, uh, head over heels flip into the corner, like, uh, you know, like flair. And, uh, and, and it was just, it was, it was a action packed match for six minutes. And then, and then they had to get on with the haircut stuff. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, Adrian was tremendous. I, I saw uh, Murdoch and Adonis against uh, the Briscoe brothers at uh, not not Jay, <laughs> yeah, Jack Jack and Jerry Briscoe, you know. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah, uh, right after they sold their uh, their stake in NWA to the WWF, right? Yeah, yeah, and uh, yeah, Adonis Adonis was uh, was tremendous, and I'm glad. I'm glad he's being acknowledged because um, I, I saw him. Um, I go back with Adonis to uh, the 70s. Uh, he was in L.A. as Keith Frank. And even then, you knew he was going to be something. He was, uh, you know, even as a kid, he, he he had something. He had something special. And, uh, yeah, R.I.P. A lot. So many of these guys are gone. Yeah, it's it's rough. Um. One of the uh, one of the next action figures we were going to look at was Andre the Giant, and I'm guessing you have some uh, Andre stories to share. Oh, absolutely. Um, let me first give my review of the uh, action figure. Um, sure. I give this I give this action figure uh, out of out of five a three point five. Mm -hmm. Body body wise, they captured him, but. Um, the hair color doesn't match, and the eyebrows don't match, and the face looks almost like uh, like a mask, like a uh, like a ghost. It, it 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 doesn't quite capture him. Um, 
because again because of the uh body and the uh the boots and the tights i, I would know it's andre but um it's not quite there you know so i'm giving it a 3.5 um universally it's one of the uh, least popular uh renditions of a of a wwf wrestler as far as that action figure line is concerned okay, so well, there you go so, so i hit you're it. not you're not alone <laughs> yeah yeah it, it it's uh if i if if the head was not connected to the body i would not know it was andre the giant let's put it that way yep yeah. interesting um so andre the giant i hear many many of the uh vicious fanboys doing the uh doing the he's overrated he he just punched and kicked he didn't do much well um i saw andre the giant in 1974 at madison square garden i'm 103 years old and uh <laughs> and Andre against Killer Kowalski in 1974. This was a young, thin, agile, fast-moving. It was a different guy. It was a different guy. Most wrestling fans know him from WrestleMania three, the huge match with Hogan, and he was a shell, a broken-down shell of his former self. In the early 80s, he broke his ankle. He got out of bed. He got out of bed, and he just broke his ankle, I guess, all, all the weight. And um, after that, he just put on more and more weight. And um, But if you saw Andre live in the 70s, he was the seventh wonder of the world. Um, the guy was tremendous and a huge, huge attraction. I'll tell you a little little thing that most people don't know yeah as a kid i would stand outside of madison square garden with my dad and collect autographs from the wrestlers and the stage door was clearly labeled seven feet for deliveries you know because if if yeah if whatever they wheeled in there was um bigger than seven feet it just wouldn't fit okay so here's andre walking in and out of that door and he did not have to duck he was well <laughs> under seven feet the seven foot four thing is just hype he was probably a legit six nine or so if you see him in the ring with ernie lad they're pretty much the same size you know andre had the big boots and the big afro uh, hairdo and um he uh, was certainly not seven foot four. Another myth is that Bruno sold out the garden every time, 187 times. Absolute nonsense. Just <laughs> he didn't even he didn't even wrestle there 187 times. Okay, I was there on many many a night over 10 years or so, where some nights Bruno sold out the garden, some nights he didn't simple as that simple interesting as that. Yeah. yeah i got two other uh height comparison ones that are interesting like uh, uh slick is a, a legitimate uh six foot four and apparently if you got slick next to hogan they were uh almost identical and uh 
instead of Hogan being six foot eight. So I always have assumed Andre was probably around maybe six ten, like you said. And then uh, yeah. Big John, Big John Stud, who they build at six foot ten at the WrestleMania two Battle Royal, they have him next to Bill Fralick, and they're about the same height. And I think Bill Fralick is six foot three, six foot four at the most. So, so yeah, there's a lot of uh, showmanship and and circus type. Uh, stuff in, in wrestling that uh and we all uh we all forgive it but it's interesting to know the truth and i, I love the seven foot door story i'm glad you shared that oh, it's absolutely true yeah uh, and um let, let me let me also say this what people don't understand is you're going back 50 or even 50 plus years and in general people weren't as big they just weren't as big you know uh the nba you know, not everybody was seven feet tall back then. So, yep. um, you know, some of these guys were pretty much normal sized guys. I mean, I'm six, two and a half. And you had guys in the NBA back then that were my size or a little bigger. So um, when you saw an Andre the Giant or an Ernie Ladd, Killer Kowalski was billed as a giant. Don Leo Jonathan was billed as a giant because these were very big men. For that era but andre also had the massive girth or whatnot you know he, he was big he was he was you know he was just a very very large man for that era and they marketed him as such but seven foot four he he wasn't <laughs> believe me right. yeah nice did you ever uh get to spend any time around andre or just uh, uh I could tell you my tragic Andre story. Um, as a kid, as a kid, a total mock, we would stand outside the garden and collect autographs. And every single time, Andre and Dusty, two of the biggest heroes, would walk past us kids without signing a single autograph. Okay? <laughs> so, so then, then... You would get superstar Billy Graham. He would come out. He would sign for everybody. He couldn't be any nicer. Lou Albano couldn't be any nicer. You know. And they were both heels, right? What's that? They were both heels at the time, right? Oh, of course, of course, yeah. <laughs> so, it, you know, by standing outside, it, it smartened you up to the business. George Steele, who was supposed to be like a raging lunatic who couldn't talk. He's chatting with us, perfectly intelligent, signing for everybody, you know. So um, it was funny as a kid. It was also a little disillusioning because you loved Andre, you loved Dusty, and they weren't nice. They weren't nice to the kids. So uh, it was uh, it was eye opening to say the least. And uh, Billy Graham would just stop and chat, you know, with with that charisma. But I'll tell you, I'll tell you which faces were nice. And um, Bruno, Bruno was a real champion. Bruno would shake your hand and he had this powerful grip and he was like your hero. And you're like, you didn't want to wash your hand afterwards, you know? And, but was, uh, I got to ask, was Bruno, was that your guy? I'm guessing when you were uh, uh, from being a, a kid and discovering wrestling around oh 11 God, and 12. Oh my God. Um, what you have to understand about wrestling in the 70s, Bruno, Pedro, Monsoon, Chief J Strongbow, you loved them. They were your heroes, and you believed it was real. And when they were getting kicked, 
you felt every kick when they were getting punched you felt every punch and this is what you know the fans today can't grasp they go oh they were just punching and kicking you know you know nobody nobody's saying you know bruno was as good a wrestler as harley race or nick bockwinkle or dory funk jr but the charisma was off the charts off the charts and he was and what was legit with bruno was you know he could bench press 600 pounds or whatever you know he he was a powerhouse so you believed in him you believed in him and um the, you know so yeah as a kid when Bru I, I was not there when bruno lost the title to ivan koloff but i know people who were they said the play Madison Square Garden when Koloff pinned him, and he had been champion eight years, eight years. So Koloff pins him, and the place goes dead silent. And Bruno was quoted as saying, I thought I had lost my hearing because <laughs> the place went silent. And there were people weeping, weeping. They they love this man. This is what that the the average fan today can't get into the head of a blue collar mock nineteen seventy five audience. They just don't understand. So when they go, I've seen I've seen fans go. I can't watch anything before Hulkamania. It's all slow and boring, which is absolute nonsense. You know, but they, they, I'll tell you the other side of it. I'm sitting at Madison Square Garden, 1982. <laughs> Who comes out? Dynamite Kid and Tiger Mask. <laughs> you were there for that? And Tiger Mask. I'm sitting there and it's like they dropped these guys from Mars. We, we you know, this, this is like, this is like a super heavyweight territory. You would bring in these monster heels to wrestle Pedro, Bruno, Backlund. This was Vince Sr.'s, you know, method. This was, you know, this was Vince Sr.'s way of promoting. Monster heels. All of a sudden, Dynamite Kid and Tiger Mask are doing these unbelievable high spots that you've never seen before. There's no internet back then. You know, you you barely you barely heard of these guys from wrestling magazines, maybe primitive early sheets that, that were out there. And there they were, and you just were gasping. It's like you you would just sit there and just go, I can't believe what that guy just did. You never saw any. Ditto, ditto, Jimmy Snooker when he leaps, when he would leap off the cage. The first, when I saw Snooker, I was there for him in Morocco at the Garden, the legendary cage match. Snooker climbs to the top of the cage, and I look at my buddy and I go, no, no, he's not, gonna, <laughs> you know, it's like we'd never seen anything like this. So, yeah. so when he leaps off the cage, he leaps upward. He doesn't even leap downward. He leaps upward. And back then... We didn't have cell phones. A thousand flash cubes go off. Wow. It was like magic. It was like magic. Snooker lands on Morocco. And the place just roared for like five minutes. 
It was like this primeval roar. Nobody had ever seen anything like that. Mick Foley was sitting in the audience that night and it like inspired him, you know? So, so man, you know, it was a different world back then. Well, I got it. I got to touch on like basically at the uh, when we talked on last episode, you talked about having 10 channels on UHF. And I was thinking of me growing up, um, I was probably only four or five when I remember the TV in the 70s. But in Northern California, we only had like three channels for a while. So even though 10 channels seemed small, you guys were kind of spoiled. But then growing up in New York with Madison Square Garden that you could go to, man, you were a part of history on many, many occasions. So I'm sure you realize that you were lucky growing up at that time in that era um, or in that area. But uh, but yeah, that's that's really something to be able to be there for Jimmy Snuka jumping off the cage to be there and uh, and see Bruno in his prime. And then when you talked last episode about uh, Chief Jay Strongbow, that the first time I saw a match, an older match of him, I was like, wait, that's. Basically, Hogan stole all that uh, hulking up from Chief yeah, J. Strongbow. Chief People Charles don't. They don't really. earlier. You know, yeah. basically, basically, Hogan borrowed everything from uh, Billy Graham and uh, Strongbow, and he, he he admits uh, a lot of what he got was from Billy Graham, and uh, Graham was so charismatic, un- unbelievable, like. Billy Graham would walk down the aisle against Bruno at the garden and the building would literally shake. There were 22,000 people there and there were several thousand in, uh, watching on closed circuit at the attached felt forum for $20 a ticket, which was a lot of money back then. They were yeah. watching it on a screen. There weren't enough seats at the garden to accommodate Bruno and Billy Graham. So when people go... Oh, they were just punching and kicking. You know, they 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 weren't wrestlers. <laughs> People are clueless how great these guys were in their own way. And look, um, by the late eighties, late eighties, Vince had turned it into a cartoon with all the characters. And I was going to the NWA in Philly and Baltimore. And uh, those were probably the best cards I ever went to, you know, with the horse. You had the horseman on top, Flair on top, Midnight Express, Rock and Roll Express, Road Warriors, Dusty, you know, mid-card, mid-card you had Madison Square Garden headliners like Billy Graham and Jimmy Valiant, Rick Rude, you know, it was, it was such a loaded lineup. That, that the NWA Crockett had back then, um, you know, that those were amazing too. So, uh, you know, I was, I was blessed to have seen a lot of the greatest wrestling ever presented. Then I would go to Philly for Joe Goodhart's shows for the, for ECW, you know, I, I ROH, ROH in, in, in the two thousands, Nigel McGuinness and Brian Danielson. It was like Dory Funk and Jack Briscoe. It was like Ric Flair and Ricky Steamboat. It was some of the greatest technical matches I've ever seen. So, you know, on the one hand, you can't you can't do the oh they were just punching and kicking and those guys were nothing back then. 
And on the other hand, you can't the the old school guys will go. There's been no good wrestling since the territories, which is nonsense, <laughs> absolute nonsense. So, um, you know, wrestling evolves, and you can today you can watch wrestling every night of the week, and uh, you could pick and choose. It's a smorgasbord: what you like, what you don't like. You know, it's. Um, I, and I, you can load up. Uh, you can load up the old stuff on the internet and watch that. So. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, it doesn't have to be one or the other. Um, you know, when people mock a Kenny Omega, I'm like Kenny Omega and Okada. That's art. That's art. Kenny Omega and Will Ospreay. That's art. Even Ricochet and Will Ospreay to me is art. Whether you, whether you like that style or not that that's up to you but uh to, to to dismiss it you know oh they're just spot monkeys no 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 kenny omega and okada those are two masters you know doing what they want to do it it, it doesn't it it doesn't negate it because you don't appreciate it and, well it's refreshing uh, to hear uh somebody that's been watching wrestling for uh, 50 years that has a respect for all eras. So I appreciate that from you, Evan. That's uh, that's refreshing stuff to hear. And I'm sure a lot of people out there have the same feeling. And well, that, that, thank, that you, I do. thank you. At the same time, at the same time, when WWE went into Madison Square Garden the other night and had had a tw- had 27 minutes of wrestling on a SmackDown, you know, that to me is like a knife in my heart. Because you know, to yeah. me, Madison Square Garden is 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 sacred, and you're desecrating it by turning it into a talk show. At the same time, I enjoy Roman Reigns. At the same time, I enjoy the Usos. Okay, but don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. I'll watch and enjoy certain matches in, on a WWE pay per view, like Cody Rhodes and. And Seth Rollins, those are two. Those, those are artists. Those are artists. Uh, Seth Rollins and Sammy, excuse me, uh, Roman Reigns and Sami Zayn. That was a great match. I mean, yeah. you know, but I, I don't want to watch two hours of talk and um, you know bad comedy and commercials and you know stilted scripted promos. To me, that I I don't particularly enjoy. So, um, but again, it's a smorgasbord. Pick what you like and don't watch what you don't like. You know, very simple. Um, the people, the people that attack AEW, you know, I realize their flaws and I absolutely loathe that picture in picture. But, but, but when, uh, but when in MJF uh, and and Kenny Omega, you know, wrestle, that's art to me. It's art. So. Uh, what can I say? Definitely. Now, uh, if we look at, uh, if we jump to the uh, action figures again and we look at um, Jimmy Snuka, what kind of uh, stories of Snuka, aside from the awesome being there for the leap on Don Morocco, but uh, stories about Snuka and a rating out of five stars, would you give that Jimmy Snuka LJN figure? Okay. So again, again, that captures jimmy's body that captures jimmy's outfit even the headband but 
his his head and face does not particularly look like Jimmy Snooker. You know who that looks like? That looks like Ronald Isley from the Isley Brothers. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's who that looks like. If I saw that head on a table at a uh, at a, at a at a wrestling show or convention, I go, "What's Ron, Ronald Isley doing here?" It, it doesn't really look like Jimmy Snooker, unfortunately. So I. The body, yes. The the outfit, yes. The face, no. I'd give that a three out of five. It, it just didn't particularly capture him. Um, as far as Jimmy, um, I used to go see Piper against Snooker, headline the garden, and I, I'll explain it this way. Um, they would tear into each other, and Roddy, from one second to the next, total improv he didn't know what he was going to do a second later so neither did the fans and it was like it was like a tornado had hit the ring the heat was off the charts the building was vibrating and when it was over when the match was over you could breathe again you could breathe again that's how great it was that's, That's a great description, and I've always wondered if, as far as you know, they talk about like pandemonium. It would the would a Roddy Piper Jimmy Snuka match in its prime be right up there with like five percent of everything that's ever happened in wrestling, or oh, maybe one percent? Absolutely, heel Piper, prime heel Piper, WWF, nineteen eighties was was as great as anything I, I've ever seen. You you can't imagine. The heat, the excitement, because he was so wild, you know, you did not know what was going to happen one second to the next. And he rarely lost, no matter who he wrestled. You know? so, so it wasn't like the traditional, the heel works his way up to Bruno, Bruno beats the heel. You know, it wasn't like that. It was like with Piper, you had no idea what was going to happen. And... Um, Piper and Snooker were amazing together. Piper and Orton as a tag team, they wrestled Snooker and the Tonga Kid. Um, they wrestled um, Junkyard Dog and Snooker. I mean, it, it was it was amazing. It was just um, they 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 tore the roof off the garden. Um, Piper and Orton. Orton's another one that's underrated. Great great wrestler, and him and Piper were a great tag team, and. Uh, you know, a lot of fans today. Oh, he was just—he was just uh, Piper's stooge. Absolute nonsense! Nonsense. Piper that was actually—that uh, was the first main event I ever witnessed. Was I—I uh, I became a fan in April or May of '86, uh, and then when Roddy returned in uh, late August of '86, and uh, basically wanted his show back from Adrian Adonis, and became just a hugely popular uh, babyface, even won Pro Wrestling Illustrated's uh, Most Popular Wrestler of the Year award. So in Sacramento, about an hour and 20 minutes from us, the first time I went to see a show, December 5th of 86, it was Roddy versus Orton with uh, in the main event with Danny Davis, the, the heel uh, referee, the crooked referee, officiating. So... So, yeah, I have a soft spot for, of course, Roddy. He's my all-time favorite, but for Bob Orton as well. So, uh, yeah, I appreciate – he was uh, 
He was called the excellence of execution by Gorilla Monsoon before Monsoon started calling Brett that. So yeah, you're you're 100 on in, in my what, opinion. Wasn't got main events against Backlund for the title. He was a legit guy, you know. You know, fans. It's it's almost cruel, like decades later, where they have these weird spins and and they they just kind of like mimic each other. Oh, Flair wrestled the same match every night. No, he did not. That's absolute nonsense. Um, Flair, Flair, when he wrestled a Ricky Steamboat, it certainly was not the same match as if he wrestled a powerhouse like uh, Nikita Koloff. It was a different match. They, they all had their signature spots. Flair would go 20, 30, 40 minutes. So, of course, you, you do some of the same spots but he did not wrestle the same match. Bob, Bob Orton was, was not, quote, just Roddy Piper's stooge. That's just stupid. You know, they, 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 they just get these ideas in their heads, and, uh, and, and many times it's negative. It's negative. It is. Yeah, it's unfortunate. Uh, one last wrestler, uh, wrestling figure to go over this show, which is uh, – the junkyard dog and his uh, dog collar and steel and silver or gold chain. Sorry, gray chain that he has. They actually had a black version of that chain and a red version, but the picture I showed you is the gray. And that little accessory sometimes uh, it would be missing if you got him secondhand. But what do you think about uh, junkyard dog, the wrestler? Oh yeah, that that definitely that definitely captures him. I would give this a four out of five. I, I don't I don't understand why it has a little like gray in his beard i don't remember that and, and not in that era uh, it's probably the lighting because he didn't just the lighting yeah, yeah 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 but uh yeah you would definitely know that's jyd and the fact that it says jy dog on the side of the tights is a clue also but uh yeah the, yeah facially it's a good it's not perfect but it's a good um it, it looks it looks very much like him. You got the chain, the outfit, the body. He got out of shape later, but in his prime, he was in very good shape. Um, yeah, it captures him. I, I think of the, of the three, it's the best. I'd give it a four out of five. What What would you uh, say about when when you first saw JYD show up at Madison Square Garden or Nassau Coliseum or wherever you saw him the first time when he came to WWF? Uh, JYD had charisma off the charts. Um, when I saw him at the Garden headline against uh, Piper and Snooker, excuse me, Piper and Orton against JYD and Snooker, I believe, um, it, it, they just blew the roof off the place. They just blew the roof off the place. Um, he had crazy, crazy charisma. Again, um, like Bruno or Pedro, as a wrestler, he wasn't Harley Race or Dory Funk or Nick Bockwinkle, but but nobody ever said he was. You know, he was a very colorful character with amazing, amazing charisma, and uh, not as big in WWE as he was in UWF for Watts, um, but a big star. And even on uh, the WWE cartoons, the Saturday morning cartoons. So he, what, what I say about JYD, which some people are unaware, in the 80s, in the 80s, you just didn't have a lot of black crossover stars. 
there was Michael Jackson. Later, there was Prince. You know, ironically, O.J. Simpson, who did tons of TV commercials. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there was not a ton of black crossover stars. A few NBA players were huge, huge stars, of course. But um, J.Y. What's that? Michael Jackson and uh, Michael Jordan, but, uh, you know, and Bo Jackson to a lesser extent. But in the wrestling world, JYD is probably the top um, black entertainer of all time. Yeah, I mean, um, Muhammad Ali retired in 1980. Muhammad Ali was the most famous man in the entire world, literally. He, Definitely. He, he fought in Africa. He, he lived in Africa and trained for a while. He was Muslim. He came along when closed circuit TV, the technology was there to bring him around the world. Ali was the most famous man in the world, but he, his boxing career was finished in 1980 uh, or 81. Um, he came back again. But um, my point being, JYD in that era, it was really unusual to have a crossover star like that where he's in cartoons and... Um, yeah, ama an amazing rags to riches and ultimately a tragic story um, between the drug use and the, uh, you know, the uh, accident that killed him. I believe he was 44 years old or 45. So, um, but um, yeah, unbelievable, unbelievable charisma. And um, I, I, I find that um for whatever reason the fans are very um positive towards him unlike others I, I, you don't you don't hear a lot of people knocking him they have a warm spot for him which is great because he deserves it you know definitely yeah i guess mr t is the one we forgot as far as the black crossover star oh, yeah, mr. T. Yep. but yep. i mean you could count them on two or three or four hands basically and um, so uh, what JYD accomplished, uh, basically growing up in a, you know, uh, a, a shack with an outhouse to headlining Madison Square Garden, it's an amazing accomplishment. It's, a, it's an amazing uh, road that he, uh, that he was on back then. So, you know, I, I have nothing but, nothing but respect and um good memories of them excellent evan i uh i can't thank you enough for uh being on here with me and telling your stories and your vast knowledge of the the history of wrestling your respect for every era of wrestling and the uh the, the gifts that you've helped to provide us as wrestling fans with uh uh, currently pro wrestling stories, but uh, in the past, the movie The Wrestler, the documentary 350 Days, the documentary Wrestling Then and Now. Um, I've got plenty more things I'd love to talk to you about. Uh, if uh, I will, I will hit you up again and see what your schedule holds. But uh, again, I can't thank you enough for spending some time with me. I really, really appreciate you. Oh, absolutely. My pleasure. My pleasure. And uh... Uh, coming out hopefully later this year or early next year, I have a book coming out. It's called Wrestling Rings, Blackboards, and Movie Sets. And it's 100 stories about my life. And it's uh, not just wrestling. It's uh, juggling multiple 
careers and including filmmaking and uh yeah filmmaking is uh, <laughs> filmmaking's like wrestling the good the bad and ugly of it all it's uh it's a it's a tough business just like wrestling well i'm gonna have to hit you up for an autograph copy when you get that published i appreciate i appreciate the support and yeah any, anytime i enjoy talking to you you have a you have a great show and uh you know uh, much respect thank you thanks for having me thank you so much and uh you have a uh, a great night and like i say i will uh i will reach out to you again soon evan thank you so much oh yeah i'd be happy to no problem okay bye -bye. so for legendary wrestling figures this is uh 80s wrestling fan brian everybody out there take care